Good morning, everybody. Uh, we have three short readings this morning. The first is from the book of 2 Thessalonians, and the second two are from the Gospel of Mark. So firstly, from 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 6 to 10. God is just. He will pay, trouble to the, he will pay back trouble to those who trouble you, and give, give relief to you who are troubled, and to us as well. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the majesty of his power. On the day he comes to be glorified in his holy people and to be marvelled at among all those who have believed. This includes you, because you believed our testimony to you. Secondly, from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 14, verses 32 to 36. They went to a place called Gethsemane, and Jesus said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James and John along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Stay here and keep watch. Going a little farther, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And lastly, a couple of pages probably over in your Bible if you're following, uh, from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 15 verses 33 to 38. At the sixth hour, darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing near heard this, they said, listen, he's calling Elijah. One man ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a stick and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. This is the word of the Lord. And as Miriam said earlier, we are beginning a two-part series. It's Advent, and Advent's the time not only do we look forward to the coming of Jesus at Christmas, but also the time we look forward to his second coming. And so uh, heaven and hell are what, in a sense, follows Jesus' second coming, and so that's why uh, now. It's not very Christmassy, but it is very Adventy. Uh, it's a really tricky topic and there'll be many emotions so let's ask the Lord uh, to help us and speak to us. Father thank you so much that you are a God who speaks and we praise you for your goodness uh, to us in so many ways. Help us to trust that you are a God who is good and help us to know uh, as we hear these hard words uh, that uh, you are a God who is good and who loves us and you speak them to us in love. For Jesus' sake, amen. John Lawrence was a wealthy landowner in Elizabethan, England. Joan Wright was his servant girl. 
John Lawrence used his position to force himself upon Joan Wright uh, to have sex with her, and she fell pregnant. Upon hearing of that news, John Lawrence threw her penniless onto the street. As I read that true story, I, I'm sure like you, was indignant. How dare he do such a thing? If such a thing happened today, uh, he'd be arrested, he'd be tried, and I hope thrown into prison. And we would say, rightly so. But I imagine that John Lawrence would find that reaction bizarre. I think he'd probably laugh at us. To him and to others of his day, Joan is nothing more than a servant girl. She's property. He can do with her as he likes. Why are you getting yourself so worked up about a servant girl, is what I think he'd say. He's indifferent. We are indignant. Why the difference? Why the difference? Surely it's because of how we see Joan. To him, she's nothing more than property. For us, she's a unique individual. It doesn't matter how poor she is. It doesn't matter who pays her wages. She's a human being who has rights and worth and dignity. He cannot trample over her like that. We live in a society, don't we, that finds the idea of hell baffling. The idea of an eternal punishment for sins is thought of as at best a throwback to a distant age, a superstition we've grown out of, something to be mocked, name a pizza company after it. But at worst, the idea of hell is morally repugnant. Torment in hell doesn't seem to fit the crime. And it's not just people out there. Many Christians have begun to question the teaching of the Bible. I don't think that's because the teaching of the Bible is unclear. Now, of course, there are some things related to hell that are unclear, that are questions we might ask. But in general, the teaching on hell is clear. I'm struck that every single author in the New Testament makes reference to a punishment for those who don't trust in Jesus after death. The word hell is on the lips of the loving Lord Jesus more than anyone else in the Bible. The Bible is clear, and yet what it says clashes with our worldview. It certainly clashes with my worldview. I'm uncomfortable with it. Not so much intellectually. I think as we look at our world, we know that there needs to be a judgment. We know that wrongs need to be righted. It's not an intellectual problem for me. It's an emotional problem. Can it really be that millions of people, many of whom I know, many of whom I love, will spend eternity under judgment in hell. Is our sin really that serious? Well, as I've looked at my own heart, part of the reason I think this question is so pressing to me is that I'm like John Lawrence. I don't understand, maybe we don't understand the value, the dignity of the one against whom we sin. So we think... It's a small thing to sin against God. I don't see his majesty, and so I think it's a trifle to go against him. Now, we can't look at God's character in any detail, but that is the context we need to have in mind. And, and you'll see I've, I've put a little uh, sermon outline inside the, the notice sheets, but the context we need to have in mind is that God is worthy. He is glorious. He is good and loving and holy. Miriam began uh, the confession time with those words from Isaiah, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. That is who the Lord God is. He is holy, he's pure, and he's almighty, supremely worthy. He is full of love, he is love, showering his love upon us. 
And the right response is like those angels, to bow down and worship him, to praise him, to give him our all. But if we forget that, we think it's a small thing to sin against him. Just as John Lawrence laughs at the idea he should be punished for abusing a servant girl, so it's easy for us to begin to scoff, to mock, perhaps even to be offended, that the idea that our sin is deserving of such a terrible punishment. And if we feel like that deep down, it's because I think we don't grasp how worthy and glorious God is. To sin against him is a terrible thing that deserves a terrible punishment. Now, we must keep that context in view, the supreme worth of God. But what I want to do this morning, really, is spend most of our time in that first passage that Luke read to us, 2 Thessalonians 1. It's a passage that has the three main descriptions the Bible gives of hell. Punishment, destruction, and banishment. They come together in that passage, and as we unpack this passage, we, I think, get a sweep of what the Bible as a totality says on hell. But then we're going to come to Mark's Gospel, and we see Jesus suffering, and see how Jesus endured hell so that no human being ever need to. He was punished He was destroyed. He was banished so that we need never be. Well, do, if you're in a Bible, turn back to 2 Thessalonians or it will be on the screen. And the first thing we see is that hell is God's just punishment. Hell is God's just punishment. Look at verse 6. And note first, God is just. God is just. Friends, this is absolutely key. We wonder, is hell fair? Is it proportionate? Well, just as God is love, so God is just. And his judgment must be fair. It is absolutely righteous and just and fair. A contemporary of mine uh, was put on trial. Uh, He was tried for an awful crime. If you'd been in England at the time a few years ago, you'd have seen his face in the national papers. And as the judge pronounced the guilty sentence, which he clearly was the papers reported that he smirked. Well, on Judgment Day, as God pronounces sentence, there will be no smirking. No one will put their hands up and say, it wasn't me. No, all will say, I've got what I deserve. It is just. Come back to verse 6 in a minute, but look at the middle of verse 7 and see who it is who judges and when this will happen. We're told this will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. That is to say, at the end of time. And then the Lord Jesus will punish. It is the loving Lord Jesus who will punish. And what is the crime? What will he punish? Those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now that sounds unfair, doesn't it? It sounds like people are being punished for ignorance, for not having knowledge, but that's not what it means. I once uh, was, uh, got speeding. The, the camera got me. And in England, you, you get a second chance. You can go and spend a morning on a speed awareness course, or you can pay a fine and, and get some points. Well, I went to this speed awareness course, and most of us were pretty contrite. We, we knew we'd been done, and uh, so fair enough, we are pretty humble. But there was one man who sat right at the front, and a number of times in this two-hour course, he said, it, it's not fair. I didn't see the sign. I didn't know the speed limit. And uh, the more and more he protested, the more and more uh, we thought he's a bit obnoxious. But it, this is not what he's talking about. It's not that we didn't see the sign. Most of us 
in our small groups as you have looked at Romans. And Paul, right back in the beginning of chapter 1, says that in creation, in our glorious world, in our consciences, there is enough evidence to know that there is a God who should be worshipped. And yet instead of, dealing, instead of taking that evidence seriously, we suppress the truth. We push it down. It's not that we don't know, but rather we, we push it away. We refuse to act in line with what we know. Someone said, There's an att- it's as if we attempt to get rid of God. And yet, of course, that's impossible. And so we determine that we'll live our lives as if we had got rid of him. It's not just ignorance. It's deliberate calculated defiance and the stark reality is either we're with God or we're against him and if we're against him we find ourselves his enemy it's possible isn't it to do that very politely just ignoring him just doing my own thing it's possible like Richard Dawkins something like that to 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 shake our fists violently in the heavens there is no God most of us I think at one time were just somewhere in between But the problem here is not ignorance, it's defiance of God. It's not actually the sins that we do, the bad things we do, it's that attitude that's at core. And of course that attitude works itself out in the way we treat others. The context in Thessalonians is that these Christians, this church is under persecution. They're facing terrible things from people who hate God and so they hate the church. And we see that all the time in our world, don't we? We see people who have no respect for God and so have no respect for people made in his image. Think of people who who have no respect for God and so are happy to to traffic people around the world, are happy to force people to work in, in slave shops. Think that when we are willing to cut people down with our words, it comes because we forget that they're made in God's image and that God is worthy of our honor. Well, see how in that context, this idea of judgment is wonderful. Look at verse 6 again. God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. Justice will be done. All the wrongs in this world will be righted, and it's wonderful. I wonder if you've ever had a time when justice was snatched from you. Maybe in your your mind, sometimes you replay it. You fantasize about it having gone another way. And this says there is a time when all who've been wronged will be comforted. The Hitlers, the Stalins, the terrorists, the abusive spouses, the exploitative bosses, the con artists, they don't win. They don't get the last word. God will bring comfort and relief. Justice is wonderful but it leads to a just punishment that is terrible. In Matthew 25, Jesus speaks of eternal punishment and then talks of those who are suffering that punishment being thrown into an eternal fire. I don't think we're necessarily meant to take those images literally, but just as those images, uh, just as the images of heaven, of a great banquet, a place of great joy, in a sense point beyond themselves, it's more than a banquet, Well, so too with the the pictures of fire. It points to a reality that is unimaginably unimaginably awful. Jesus makes it clear. The punishment of hell is worse than being drowned in the sea. It's better to gouge out our eyes than to go to hell. The punishment of hell is terrible. 
But friends, we must not equate God's wrath, God's punishment, with our human notions of it. We had an incident. I say this to my shame, but we had an incident in our house a few weeks ago. And the kids said after me, Daddy, uh, afterwards, Daddy, you used a naughty word. You used the S-U word. That's S-U word. And I thought, what did I say? And I realized to my shame, in my frustration, I'd said uh, probably to Ren, Ren, shut up. I'm so frustrated, and I'm so embarrassed to say that. It doesn't matter how frustrated I am, it doesn't excuse it. But we need to see that God's wrath is nothing like that. That God is not just a scaled up, bigger version of us. He's totally different. God's wrath, God's anger, someone said, is, is not arbitrary. It's not fitful. It's not subject to emotion as our own is. It's eternally consistent. It's unchangeable. God's wrath is his holy hostility to evil, his refusal to condone it or come to terms with it. It's his just judgment upon it. Now, take it. That means that the sense of punishment in hell will be tailored to people's crime. We sometimes think, well, hell, it's just hell, and how is it fair that some people who who have done terrible things and others who really rather live good lives, how can the same place be fair for them? I take it there's a sense it will be tailored to fit the crime, that hell will be worse for the mass murderer than the fraudster. It will be worse for the fraudster than for the person who's just gone about life nicely, doing it their own way. But for all who've done this to God, hell will be unbelievably horrendous, but it will be just... It will be just. And if we can't get our heads around it, in part, it's because we don't see the horror it is to sin against God. Hell is God's just punishment. Secondly, hell is everlasting destruction. Hell is everlasting destruction. Look at verse 9. Paul says, They will be punished with an everlasting destruction. And this is a, a terrifying image. But I think, in a sense, it's a confusing image because how can something be destroyed forever? Once something's destroyed, it it ceases to exist. And there are some called annihilationists who who point to this verse and say, well, hell will be real, but after a time it will be destroyed. Uh, It will be annihilated. Now, I can't engage with that viewpoint at any length. It's something that's definitely worth thinking about I'm not convinced by it. I I would love to be. It would make the the horror of hell slightly less horrible. But um, the argument is made on more than just this one verse. But I think this one verse here doesn't mean that. It doesn't mean that that the people are destroyed totally. But rather it means, as one theologian says, it's a destruction whose consequences last forever. Destroyed and yet somehow lasting forever. It's picked up in other images, a second death of perishing, of eternal fire. And there's a sense here, I think, of the idea of hell as as everlasting destruction is of sin moving to its logical consequence. Friends, what's the most valuable thing about you? What's the most valuable thing about you? Surely it's that you are made in the image of God, that you and I have the capacity to relate to God, to relate to one another, And our relationships have the ability, don't they, to bring such wonderful joy, but also to bring the most pain when they sour. But sin begins to wipe out the image of God in us. It destroys the image, doesn't it? And there's a sense that in hell that process is brought to its completion. It's a horrendous thought to think that the the sinners, there is a continuity between the life of the sinner now and the sinner in hell. 
I don't know if you've seen uh, Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol. Maybe you've read it or you've seen an adaption of it. I think that the most highbrow I've gone is to a Muppet's Christmas Carol. But if you've seen that, that story, think of Scrooge and the man who's a miser, who so loves money that every relationship is characterized and thought of in economic terms. He's vastly wealthy, and yet he can't use his wealth to bless others. We see him constantly in a dark room. He's too stingy to light a candle. He's too stingy to light a fire, so he sits there shivering. He's a man in whom the image of God has begun to be scrubbed out. Timothy Keller, a pastor in New York, tells the story of uh, talking to somebody and, uh, and the person said, the, the images of fires of hell, they just don't scare me. It seems far-fetched, it seems silly. And so Tim Keller read to him lines of C.S. Lewis on hell. And C.S. Lewis says, hell begins with a grumbling mood, always complaining, always blaming others, but you're still distinct from it. You may even criticize it in yourself and wish you could stop it, but there may come a day when you can no longer. Then there'll be no you left to criticize the mood or even to enjoy it, but just the grumble itself going on forever and ever like a machine. And in each of us, there is something growing which will be hell unless it's nipped in the bud. And Keller said, to my surprise, this man went very quiet and said, now that scares me to death. Imagine yourself at your most beastly the time you were most appalled at yourself. And imagine that growing and growing unchecked in you without any hope of getting better, rather getting progressively worse. I think that's a little picture of the hell waiting to engulf us. It's a picture of the everlasting destruction of the image of God within us. And it's horrendous. Hell is everlasting destruction. Third, hell is banishment from God's kingdom. Look at verse 9. They will be punished with an everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Shut out. Banished from Jesus' presence. And notice this is active. I've often, I think, talked about hell as being separated from God. And there's a sense that's right, but it sounds very passive, doesn't it? This is the opposite of a, a, a warm welcome into heaven. This is being shut out. And it's terrible because it means being cut off from the blessings of God, who is the source of all life and goodness. The evangelist, John Chapman, wonderful man, tells of a time uh, when he was telling somebody about Jesus and pleading, believe in Jesus, make sure you you go to heaven. And the man said, I I don't want to go to heaven. All my mates will be in hell. And quick as a flash, Chapo said, there will be no mates in hell. Because to be banished from God is to be cut off from every blessing in this life. No more love, only fear. No more joy, rather unspeakable emptiness. No forgiveness, rather unquenching rage. It's awful. And yet it's necessary for evil to be banished if heaven is to be secure. Just think back to the terror attacks in March. And Part of the way terror thrives is is the fear, isn't it? Something terrible happens and we wonder, will it happen again? Is it finished? There was a terror attack just two days ago, wasn't there, on London Bridge in London. It's a bridge I've walked over personally many times. And recently when I've been there, I've thought as I've walked along that bridge, 
maybe something will happen. I'm frightened, not, not, not paralyzed by it, but there's a fear in my heart. And there's a sense that we can never be sure that sin is finished, that evil won't happen again until it's banished. And that's what Jesus promises to do on Judgment Day. Evil will be finished. It's horrendous and yet it's wonderful because it means peace will reign. Well, friends, as we come to the end of this point, the Bible's picture of hell as a just punishment, of everlasting destruction, of banishment. But can I just underline how hell shows the dignity of men and women? Do you remember how Jesus wept over Jerusalem as he longed that they'd repent, his love for that city welling up? As I take it, he looks at the world and, and he, he weeps as he sees many who defy him. As he weeps, as he sees maybe some in this room who are on their way to an eternal re- rejection of him. He longs that you turn back. But do you see, friend, if you will not bow the knee before Jesus, if you will not obey the gospel, he will respect your choice. You have such dignity that he will not overrule it. He will not force you to change your mind. But he does say, if you want to go to hell, then over my dead body. Over my dead body. Because there's a time when hell was on earth. And the final thing we need to see this morning is that God in the person of Jesus endured hell for us. That God in the person of Jesus endured hell for us just put up the passage in the Garden of Gethsemane. And notice the terror on the Lord Jesus' face as he contemplates the cross. Verse 34, we're told he was greatly distressed and troubled. He says, my soul is overwhelmed even to the point of death. He's utterly in agony of spirit. And then verse 35, he falls on the ground. As someone's put it, the contemplation of the terror of hell is enough to prostrate holy humanity. And then see what Jesus prays. If it is possible, if there is any other way, remove this cup. The cup is a picture of God's wrath, of God's just judgment for sin. And then we skip on to the cross, chapter 15, and we see verse 33, Jesus hanging on the cross. There's darkness over the land. It's a symbol of God's judgment, of his anger. And as Jesus hangs there, he bears in his body and soul the wrath of God. We might ask, how can the suffering of Jesus, as horrendous as it was, but for a few hours, deal with the sins of the whole world? That's a question we don't know the answer to definitively. But I think that in the same way that sin against an eternal God is punishable by an eternal punishment, so the eternal God in the person of Jesus Christ is able to bear in a small period of time the eternal consequences of hell. Jesus is punished. And the consequence, whoever believes in him, whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And you see, as Jesus dies as his body is ripped apart, as he's destroyed at the cross, so he bears the destruction of hell. In that moment, God, as a man, tasted death. His body was destroyed so that we might live, that we might never be destroyed, that we might never endure this, that though we die, we will live again. That in a real sense, if we insist on taking the path to hell... We do it over Jesus, dead, 
and destroyed body. And then finally we see a picture of banishment. As the perfect fellowship that Jesus enjoyed with his father, always knowing the love of his father, always loving his father, is ruptured. We see that with those harrowing words, verse 34. Eloi, Eloi, lamak sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? No longer my father, but my God, distant. And God, as it were, from heaven, looks down on his son and he says as he sees his son on the brink of death the words he will say to those who come before him in judgment. The wicked, depart from me, I do not know you. I cannot imagine the pain of looking at my six-year-old son, my two-year-old son, and saying, I do not know you. That brings tears to my eyes to think of saying those words. Think of the pain that God endured. Think of the pain in Jesus as he hears that from heaven, as he knows that he's been forsaken, separated from his father. It's a kind of hell. And yet, friends, what is the consequence? As Jesus breathes his last, we see that the temple curtain is torn in two. And we need to see the symbolism of that. That's, a, that's a, almost no entry sign between the, the front of the temple and the holy part of the temple where God symbolically dwells. And as that's torn in two from top to bottom, it's as if that no entry is gone, that those who should be turned away are welcomed into the presence of God so that when we die, if we trust in Jesus, we will not hear, be gone, sinner. We'll hear, well done, good and faithful servant. We'll hear welcome, my beloved son, my beloved daughter. You are here because he, Jesus, my son, endured hell for you. Friends, we've looked hell in the eye. How should we respond? If you're not a Christian, then this urges you, this pleads with you, flee to Jesus. The Bible is serious, hell is real. But there is a solution. If you don't know it, please, can I plead with you, investigate it, find out more. But if you're a Christian here this morning, can I give you three very brief pointers? The first is this, we should be full of gratitude. How much has God done for us in Jesus? It should make us marvel and give thanks. We should be full of gratitude. Secondly, it should make us godly. We should see our sin and see that it deserves hell. See that Jesus took hell that we might not, and we should be revolted at our sin and flee from it. Gratitude, godliness, but then third, gospeling. Friends, how is it that we can know that we are rescued from hell and look out at a world that doesn't know the gospel, refuses to obey it, and not weep and grieve and pray and do anything we can to offer the same good news that we heard ourselves? As we think of hell, we should be grateful we should be more godly and we should do anything we can to share the gospel. Let's take a moment to reflect and then we'll pray. Lord Jesus, we marvel that you endured hell on the cross for us, that you were banished, you were punished, you were destroyed, that we might never be. We thank you for that. And we pray as we marvel at that, that you would help us to rejoice, to be full of gratitude, 
We long for those who don't know you, that you would make us bold in sharing this good news that none need go to hell and endure this punishment. Have mercy on us. Do your deep work in us. For Jesus' sake, amen.